begin. Welcome to Mass Ave. We're here bringing you conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Emily Vanderbush. And I'm Tommy Binion. Welcome to the show today. We are back on taxes. We're going to have Armina Bacha joining us to give us an update of uh, what's in the current bills that are being negotiated in the House and Senate. And she's also going to talk to us about government spending, which the usual is a little bit out of control. So excited to, to give you some of those insights. But other than that, Tommy, give us a little bit of an overview of what, what we're looking at today. Oh, boy. Well, um, these may be the busiest two weeks of the year coming up. Uh, of course, there's a Christmas party every night that everybody yep. in Congress has to go to. Um, and during the day, uh, they've got to be working on uh, tax reform, which the president has said uh, that he wants to sign it before Christmas. And they've got to be working on government spending, which uh, is due now. They, they, they had a short punt last week. It's mm-hmm. due December 22nd, three days before Christmas. Down to the wire. Uh, yeah, so they've got this week and next week uh, to accomplish those things. They've got to deal with the Children's Health Insurance Program, the National Flood Insurance Program, um, uh, 702 authorization for our intelligence capabilities. They're trying to work on a disaster relief package. Um, this is like... Uh, you know, exam week times 10. Uh, This is a really busy season on Capitol Hill. We're hoping that a lot of good comes out of it. I think that there, as Romina is going to talk about, there may be $200 billion worth of bad that's going to come out of it. We'll see. Uh, So a a really busy week on Capitol Hill. And then uh, then you add to that uh, the uh, sexual misconduct story that's ongoing. Senator Franken, Congressman John Conyers, both gone as of last week, electing to resign. Um, And and as far as I know, there hasn't been a a new person named in the last 24 hours. So maybe that story is slowing down. We'll see. Uh, well, I think Franken said what he was resigning in the future. So he's still there, right? He's still there, yeah. All right. Well, we'll see how that story plays out. So there was a Attempted terrorist attack in New York City today as well. So obviously we're, we're keeping an eye on the, the local officials and FBI as they investigate that. Definitely stay tuned for Heritage Experts. They'll have some right. analysis on that as well. And we've had David and Sarah on the show uh, before talking about he tracks mm-hmm. every single terror plot, whether it's a thwarted terror, terror plot or, or one where um, an act of terrorism is actually committed. He plots every single uh, radical Islamic terrorism uh, plot. Um, I believe this makes number 101 since yeah. 9-11. Uh, we'll have to – I'm sure David will have to analyze all of the factors about this attack. But uh, it looks like that. So we'll see. Um, pro tip for all you listeners out there, great hearing on the House this week, uh, House Judiciary Committee. Now, this is a committee with all the really great characters on it that are great at uh, prosecuting uh, our case, Trey Gowdy, Ron DeSantis, mm-hmm. Jim Jordan. Um, we've got Rod Rosenstein, who's the um, uh, assistant attorney general, uh, the number two at the Department of Justice. Uh, uh, Robert Mueller's special investigation reports directly to Rod Rosenstein. And so he's coming to the House Judiciary Committee to answer questions about that. Mm-hmm. Um, sure to be must-see television. Hope everybody gets a chance to watch that 2 o'clock on Wednesday. It's true. C-SPAN has been much must-see TV lately, so we recommend our our, view, our listeners, excuse me, uh, tune into that. C-SPAN is about like, about like Mass Ave in terms of its entertainment value. Right. It's through the roof. Seriously. Uh, 
insight you can only get here. All right, let's turn now to um, our interview with Romina. Joining us today is Romina Bacha. She is the Deputy Director at the Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies here at the Heritage Foundation. She's also the Grover M. Herman Research Fellow. Her expertise is budget, spending, debt, Social Security. Um, She's done some great work recently at recommended reading on on the hill is uh, making America competitive again uh, she's going to give you a preview give us a preview of that as well Romina thanks for joining us today thanks for having me let's get started with uh, tax reform okay so the two chambers are in conference with one another uh, what are what are what are the differences they're working out? The key differences pertain to the state and local tax deduction. For example, the House had retained a, a property tax deduction of about $10,000, whereas the Senate had proposed to eliminate all of the state and local tax deductions. Now, if you add in, uh, if you add back in um, the property tax deduction, that's going to cost money, and that would mean that the final bill would have to find that money somewhere because they do have a deficit constraint. They're only allowed to reduce revenue news by $1.5 trillion. So anytime you're talking about uh, boosting certain deductions and loopholes, then um, unfortunately you're also going to be talking about what what rates will need to be higher in order to pay for that. And that's where things get really problematic. Okay. So um, so we've got SALT as, as what I think was a principal difference in the beginning. It looks like, though, from my vantage point, that the Senate has, um, has sort of given into the notion that the only thing that can pass the House in terms of the state and local deduction is, um, is is what the House already passed, is the House compromise. Although, you know, there are some in the House that would like to see that go even further. Um, you wrote a, um, a paper recently about uh, some of the real pro-growth aspects of both bills, really, um, the corporate rate and uh, expensing. Uh, how, are those going to survive the conference? Where are we with that? It's really important that those stay uh, in the in the final bill because the reduction in the corporate tax rate and full expensing for business investment, those are the two key provisions that will drive most of the additional economic growth that we're expecting to see from this bill. And that could be massive. We're looking at um, nearly 3% additional economic growth uh, if those provisions stay in place. The reason for that is that right now the United States is highly uncompetitive when compared with uh, other industrialized nations. Uh, Over the past few decades, our uh, main competitors like Germany, Japan, Canada, and other countries have lowered their corporate tax rates while the U.S. corporate rate has been stubbornly stuck at 35%. The Tax Cut and Jobs Act is proposing to lower it to 20%. That it brings us much closer to the world average, which is now 23%. But keep in mind that you have to add the average of state and uh, of state corporate tax rates as well to the federal rate. So once it's all said and done with a 20% federal rate, you're looking at a more of an effective 25% corporate tax rate for the United States. So pretty close to the world average of 23%, but not all the way there. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, lawmakers are now talking about potentially using an, an, a, a slightly higher corporate tax rate, maybe 22 percent, possibly 23 percent, to pay for some of um, these other benefits they'd like to provide, including uh, a state and local tax deduction for property taxes. But that would be um, that would be counterproductive because the ultimate goal of this tax reform is to create jobs, provide higher wages for workers, and boost the overall economy such that all Americans can benefit from a 
larger, more dynamic economy that provides them with more opportunities for financial independence, start a business, um, whatever they want to do. And if we if we raise the corporate rate to pay for our other deductions and loopholes, we're going to undermine those pro-growth effects, which will overall undermine the entire uh, goal of tax reform. Yeah, you know, some podcasts have uh, sound effects. I wish our, uh, you know, where where the the host can can press a button and and all of a sudden there's a crowd booing or something like that. <laughs> so when you say that uh, I wanted that button, when you said that, you know, they're talking about. Uh, Raising the corporate rate up to 22% instead of 20, I, I wanted to press the boo button so our audience could know uh, how disappointed we are in that. It's not you know. a good thing. Yeah, remember we started at 15%. That right. is what the president had asked for. Then 20% was the compromise deal. We shouldn't we we shouldn't continue to negotiate with ourselves to raise that rate. That is really seriously the most powerful pro growth effect in this bill. The other one is full expensing. That's the idea that businesses can write off the full value of any capital investment. Investments they make in a year. That means buying more machinery, uh, make, that makes workers more productive, and that is what will drive up wages, which will ultimately benefit government revenues as well as the overall economy. Um, those two things need to stay. You're absolutely right. This is a key point here. Um, economic growth really driving the provisions in this bill. We've talked about on this show before that the media, the first thing that they do and the first thing that our natural uh, reaction is, go figure out how this affects uh, your tax bill. But it's the economic growth that's going to have a larger effect on you overall. Uh, And that's what I think we've done a really nice job of focusing on here at the Heritage Foundation is which of these provisions is aimed at economic growth. Because ultimately we believe, sure, we can help you out by lowering your marginal tax rate, but we can help you out a lot more uh, with uh, spurring economic growth. That's right, because that higher economic growth will translate into more jobs being available for some of the people that are currently outside the labor force that might rejoin the labor force when wages go up. Students that are graduating, they'll be looking for their first job. They will benefit from a bigger, more dynamic economy that hires more people. And the average median wage worker uh, can see can expect to see up to a $4,000 wage increase from uh, this tax bill. And that's really powerful if you compare that with the reduction in taxes being paid by um, these Americans you're looking at about $1,000 a year, but once the full economic growth effects take place from this bill, you're looking at a $4,000 a year wage increase. Um, so that's uh, tremendously important, and that will benefit all Americans, including those not currently in the workforce. So um, that's why we're so focused on economic growth and the potential that that brings with it. 4000 bucks. Right. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, I think a lot of the uh – there was some hysterics on Twitter when uh, the the tax reform package was passed. A lot of people saying that this was only for corporations or only for the wealthy. Um, how would you know? You kind of already went into this. How this impacts the average American? How would you address those kinds of arguments? Yeah. So what we know is that the while the corporate tax is collected at the corporate level from the corporation, it ultimately gets paid. Uh, for the most part, by workers mm-hmm. in the form of lower wages. Um, some of it gets paid by shareholders in the form of a lower dividends, and then a share also gets paid by consumers in the form of higher prices on the goods that they buy. So um, w- co- corporations ultimately are people, so it's mm-hmm. the people that pay this um, this tax. And the reason why most of it gets passed along to workers is that when corporations have choices, they can go organize themselves in, in the most profitable way by choosing 
by choosing the best tax and regulatory environment. A lot of uh, corporations are multinational. We live in a global economy. So what happens when a corporation chooses to do business elsewhere? Well, the workers aren't going to go with the corporation, so they end up uh, getting stuck and, um, and, and having fewer economic opportunities that drives down their overall wages. When we attract more businesses to make investments in the United States, which this uh, reduction in the corporate rate will absolutely do, that brings, um, creates demand for U.S. workers. And the investments that will come with that, including in additional machinery and other production uh, capacity, that will drive up productivity for workers. And the way that workers' wages are determined is just a factor of their productivity, how much are they able to produce. So that's how workers ultimately uh, benefit the most from this tax change. Right now, as the tax bill stands, um, we, we think it's really positive for the economy. The 20% rate, um, the uh, what expensing there is in the bill um, is, is important for economic growth as well. Um, conference committees are interesting, right? We, we, we basically have Republicans from the House and Republicans from the Senate. Democrats are, are in the room as well, but um, it's a really Republican-dominated show. They're negotiating um, some of these things, and as you mentioned at the top of the interview— some of the most pro-growth things uh, cost us the most in terms of revenue. And so um, as they look to try and, you know, this is how lobbying works, right? Every loophole has an army of lobbyists ready to fight for it. Um, and the conference committee is faced with, you know, an extra percentage point on the corporate rate or an extra year of the corporate rate versus, you know, an extra five or ten happy lobbyists. Uh, what are we hoping uh, to see out of this conference committee? Well, the concern is that they'll go for what the lobbyists are asking for. We're seeing this often Once again, in the political I'm hit the boo process. <laughs> yes, the boo. Um, and this is why uh, we should continue to talk about the importance of draining the swamp because that would be the perfect example of giving in to lobbyist demands at the cost uh, to the overall economy at, at the cost at a high cost to every American, and. Lawmakers should be uh, on balance trying to create the biggest benefit for the most people when they're looking at this tax bill rather than singling out um, certain special interest groups for special favors. Um, that's why we want to start this process all together. And that's actually one way in which the Senate bill can improve uh, from, from things that are included in the House bill that the Senate doesn't touch on. The House makes a much uh, a better attempt at closing many more loopholes, including loopholes for energy production that make our markets uh, less competitive because they drive money towards certain energy uh, sources versus others. And uh, the Senate could help pay for some of their other benefits that they want to provide for by closing more of those loopholes rather than undermining the pro-growth effects of uh, lower corporate rates and full expensing, because that, those two changes will ultimately benefit all Americans, and that's what uh, lawmakers should be the most concerned with, the greatest benefit for the most people. Amen to that. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about um federal spending. Uh, you can't spend a dollar that doesn't end up getting taxed at some point. Um, our listeners may have uh, caught wind of the fact that the Republican majority in the House and Senate is looking at a $200 billion increase in, in discretionary spending. Uh, what's up with that? Yes. <laughs> this We've been here before, um, and but this looks like it could be the biggest uh, spending deal 
yet since enactment of the Budget Control Act. So just for a little background, (laughs) the Budget Control Act was put in place in 2011 at a time when the deficit was over a trillion dollars and the debt was rising rapidly. And the goal of the Budget Control Act was to lower uh, spending and it targeted (laughs) discretionary programs, defense and non-defense, which spend more than a trillion dollars every year. And those are, by the way, also the only budgetary items that Congress has to vote on every year. And so we've been at this place a couple times now. Um, Congress already made three budget deals to revise those spending caps for defense and non-defense, but each time they would find other pay-fors. They would cut spending in other areas on mandatory spending, or they would use increase user fees in, in um, other areas of the government. And they would at least make an attempt to pay for their spending increase, but this time they're talking about a much, much larger spending deal. That $200 billion would be larger than the three previous deals combined. Or if you're thinking about the Budget Control Act, the past five years during the Obama administration, um, this budget deal, the first deal under President Trump, would be the biggest one. And this is not something to be proud of, because (laughs) that means the largest deficit increase from these budget-busting deals. And that's at a time when the debt limit actually was reinstated over the weekend and is now at $20.5 trillion. that's, that's over $60,000 uh, for every American. Uh, we have a huge debt and deficit problem. And I understand that lawmakers um, want to increase spending on certain programs, including defense, which has been suffered, uh, which has been suffering from cuts multiple rounds now. Uh, but the fiscally responsible way of doing that is to cut spending elsewhere. And we proposed almost $90 billion in spending cuts just for next year alone in our blueprint for balance. Uh, there's plenty uh, to cut. And Senator Lankford just came out with his federal fumbles report, which details examples of of government waste just pointing you again in that direction that there's a lot that can be cut. Lawmakers just need to um, actually do that. You talk about the blueprint where Heritage proposes some areas that we could be cutting. What are some examples of that? Well, one example that's been in the news a lot lately because the president has uh, requested additional funding for this particular program as part of hurricane relief, even though this very same program was also targeted in the president's program, in the president's budget for elimination, are community development block grants. I call them the new earmark. Since the Mm -hmm. earmark ban has been in place in Congress, community development block grants have been one of the easiest ways to continue this practice of earmarking by... um, giving highly unaccountable, with very little oversight, um, funds to states in the form of grants that then the states dole out as Mm -hmm. they see fit. And there's, like I said, very little congressional oversight to the extent that lawmakers um, have influence over this process. It happens behind closed doors largely where they will call up Mm -hmm. the agencies doling out the money and request that funds be allocated towards certain projects. And just to give one example that you can file under government waste, community development block grants have gone to like pet shampoo companies. Now, I love pets. I really do. <laughs> and some of them occasionally need a good shampoo. Uh, but it's not a proper use of uh, federal dollars and certainly not of taxpayer money 
to uh, boost um, a private company that that does that. So we need to be very careful with these types of grant programs where basically you're just sending money out into the states, and oftentimes that money is used for improper purposes. In transportation, you have the Tiger Grants, and they have been used for urban beautification and bike paths and things that are state and local priorities that the government just has nothing to do with, the federal government. Well, you know, I I think this... um the spending question is going to plague the Congress for the rest of the year until they uh, in, until they make a deal. Of course, uh, we also know that there's a whole lot of other policy riders at stake with this uh, with this potential deal. Um, and so we, you know, today's December the 11th. Uh, we've got 20 more days of the year. Um, what is that? 14 days before Christmas. 11 days before the the big fiscal deadline. Um, and so this is the busiest time of year on Capitol Hill as it stands. And you add in the the CR that they're wanting to do, the, the $200 billion spending deal that they're, that they're wanting to do, um, and, of course, tax reform. Mm-hmm. The president has said over and over and over again he wants it before Christmas. They're on track to make that happen. Um, but it's it, it is on a, a long list of things that, that they need to make happen before the end of the year. So we're keeping a close eye on that. Appreciate you being here to, to, to walk us through it. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our fellow podcasters over at SCOTUS 101. Hi, I'm Tiffany Bates. And I'm Elizabeth Slattery. If you like listening to Mass Ave, we encourage you to check out our Heritage Foundation podcast called SCOTUS 101. On SCOTUS 101, Tiffany and I break down what's going on at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. We also play trivia. Check out SCOTUS 101 on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts today. And now an exciting announcement. We are excited to announce that this podcast is now part of the Ricochet Audio Network. So welcome to all our new listeners. We hope you'll stick around. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode and rate us if you like what you're hearing. Okay, now to Jenny Maltabano for our always beloved Ask the Expert segment. She's got Jim Phillips this week. Thanks, Tommy. So for today's Ask the Expert, we're here with Jim Phillips. He's a senior research fellow for Middle Eastern Affairs here at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks so much for being here today. Well, thanks for inviting me. This is a hot topic right now. There's a lot to discuss. I think first I want to start with President Trump's announcement about Jerusalem. It's symbolic. It's rational. It's overdue. Can you explain why this is such a logical move and why it was delayed? Well, as you mentioned, this is a long-delayed move. It was approved by Congress by virtue of the 1995 uh, Jerusalem Embassy Act, and that required the uh, the president at that time was Bill Clinton to move the embassy by 1999. And if he decided not to, he was given the option of signing a national security waiver. And every president since then has signed that waiver. And in fact. Uh, Donald Trump signed it the first time around, but he didn't want to uh, hold off on actually doing it. So this time uh, he announced his intention to to move the embassy. And and we at Heritage have uh, welcomed this as a long overdue move that corrects uh, or at least addresses a historic injustice, the fact that Israel is the only country in the world 
that can't pick where its capital is. Right. And you bring up the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995, which I was actually going to mention next. A lot of people don't realize that this act passed in Congress with a bipartisan majority. And as you said, several presidents used the national security waiver to sort of kick the can down the road. And now President Trump has decided to go for it. This is happening. How do you think that President Trump and the administration should deal with the backlash that's going on right now? Well, I would say just uh, full speed ahead. Uh, it's going to take a while to acquire the land and design the embassy and build it, uh, probably at least uh, three, two or three years. Uh, so uh, the president will have to sign the waivers uh, just until the embassy is complete. Uh, but uh, I, if nothing else, uh, you know, the fact that uh, the president has acknowledged a reality that Jerusalem has been Israel's capital uh, since 1948, really. Mm -hmm. uh, going forward, it, it would help, uh, I think, peace efforts if uh, the Palestinians would uh, acknowledge reality, too, rather than holding out for uh, some things that I think are impossible uh, that, you know, they're asking for, which is, you know, return to the 1967 boundaries, which were very insecure at that time and are even more insecure today, given uh, missile technology. Yes. Nikki Haley made an interesting point a couple nights ago on Fox, I think. And she said, as great as this is for Israel, who they're our ally, our friend, this decision was primarily made by the president because it's in the best interest of the United States and our citizens. Can you explain why that is? Well, I think it, it's, uh, uh, it rewards a close ally mm -hmm. that deserves uh, a pat in the back ra rather than a, a kick in the butt, which it got from the previous administration. Uh, there's an international campaign to delegitimize Jerusalem, and part of it played out at the UN was to reject any connection between uh, the Jewish state and the Jewish people and Jerusalem. Uh, UNESCO uh, essentially said that uh, this year, and that or that's crazy. Uh, and so to the extent that this can realign uh, the policies of different groups in the region uh, and put it on a more realistic basic uh, basis, then I think that's a very good thing. That's so interesting. Now, Palestinian leaders have already said they're not going to meet with Vice President Pence on his upcoming regional visit. How does this decision affect future peace negotiations between Israel and Palestine and our involvement in that? Well, I think in the short run, it may be disruptive uh, because some of the Arab governments may be reluctant to uh, cooperate very publicly with the U.S., but I think in the, the mid to long run, it'll be a good thing uh, because it'll, it'll uh, put things on a more realistic basis. And, you know, there's no way that the Palestinians were going to come out of uh, any conceivable negotiations with Western Jerusalem as their capital. I mean, mm -hmm. perhaps Eastern Jerusalem, uh, but Western Jerusalem has been controlled by Israel since 1948, and any conceivable peace agreement would be remain part of Israel. So unlike uh, the Europeans and some hostile governments at the UN who have maintained that this blows up the peace process, really uh, this does not preclude any realistic outcome of the peace process, and in fact, 
uh, could become a good long-term influence if others actually become more realistic. Right. So in the long run, this could actually be very helpful. I think so. So for my last question, I want to ask you logistically, how does this move work? You mentioned we're looking at a timeline maybe of three to four years. Which departments, who should we be watching? Well, the State Department is now charged with with moving the embassy, and uh, I'm not sure if it already had located some ground, knowing the State Department is probably dragging its feet institutionally, so it may take more than two or three years, uh, but uh, I think four years at the most. Uh, it should have by then identified, uh, purchased, and started building, if not completed building, a U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, probably West Jerusalem. Okay. Well, this is certainly something to keep our eye on. Thank you so much again, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks, as always, for listening in, especially to the new Ricochet listeners. We're glad to have you on board. Uh, remember to subscribe to us um, and check us out on Facebook at Mass Ave Podcast. Please follow all of the Heritage Foundation's uh, channels, heritage.org, our Facebook page. Our, our Twitter feed is a really good one to be following to keep up with the latest conservative news, policy, and insights uh, just here from the steps of Capitol Hill.